I'm Nim, and you're listening to A Spoonful of Medicine, topping up your paediatric knowledge one spoonful at a time. Nephrotic syndrome. Now, you've probably heard of it in uni or on the wards, and certainly if you've done any time in paediatrics, there's a topic or a condition that is often asked about, and you probably have even seen a case. Examiners also love asking you about nephrotic syndrome. So today we're going to take a look at this high yield topic, how nephrotic syndrome presents, what causes it, and looking at the management of the most common cause in children, which is minimal change disease. So let's go. Let's kick it off with a case. So you're the paediatric registrar on a busy paediatric unit. And you get a phone call from the ED about Freddie, who is a three-year-old boy that they're concerned about his urine dipstick that had shown four plus protein on a random urine. You go down to assess Freddie and you have a chat with his mother. You learn that his mum had initially brought Freddie to the GP about two weeks ago because his eyes had seemed a bit puffy. Now, he did have a history of asthma that is being treated with a fluticasone puffer as well as a subutamol reliever, and he needs this infrequently. He hasn't had any other admissions to hospital, and he did seem to have a bit of a runny nose. His GP had initially prescribed him some antihistamines to manage this rhinoconjunctivitis, or so they thought. It is now two weeks later and his mother tells you that this puffiness seems to be getting worse. When asked, she doesn't think he seems short of breath, nor does she think his abdomen is any different from normal. On examination, he is a well-looking three-year-old who's rather chatty. He's apyrexial. You do know that Freddie's eyes are puffy and that he's got pitting edema up until his mid-shins. His pulse is 112 beats a minute and his blood pressure is 100 on 70. His cap refill time is less than two seconds. His abdomen is not distended. There's no tenderness or organomegaly. His chest is completely clear. He has no nasal polyps and his eyes aren't red. The ED staff have handily sent off some investigations already. His hemoglobin, full blood count and platelets are normal as are his electrolytes, including his potassium and his calcium. His renal function is normal and there's no rise in his creatinine. His liver function tests show an albumin of 19. His transaminases, as well as bilirubin, GTT and ALP, are all normal. On his urine dipstick, you note that there is 1 plus blood and 4 plus protein. There are no leukocytes and there are no nitrites. Your lab is quick sticks and they also have a urine protein creatinine ratio that is above 200. So what's the diagnosis? You probably guessed it. It's nephrotic syndrome. Well done. Okay, now let's go back and check out the nuts and bolts of nephrotic syndrome. So what is nephrotic syndrome? Nephrotic syndrome is defined as a triad of proteinuria or protein in your urine, hypoalbuminemia or low albumin in the blood, and 
clinical edema or buildup of fluid in the tissues. The proteinuria that is seen in nephrotic syndrome is classed as nephrotic range proteinuria. And the definition of nephrotic range proteinuria is a urine protein creatinine ratio that exceeds 200 milligrams of protein for every millimole of creatinine. This can also be said as a dipstick urine that shows 3 plus protein. If you're looking at total urine in a day, nephrotic range proteinuria can also be defined as more than 3.5 grams of protein in 24 hours of urine. Clinically, the best ways of determining nephrotic range proteinuria are either on a first morning urine sample testing of the protein creatinine ratio, or often in the emergency department or in GPs, you can use a dipstick urine that is a fast point of care test. In terms of the hypoalbuminemia or low albumin in your blood, that is considered to be less than 25 grams per litre. Edema clinically can be manifested as pitting edema, as seen in Freddie. It can be also pulmonary edema and even ascites. So there you have it. That's the definition of nephrotic syndrome. Proteinuria, hypoalbuminemia, and clinical edema. When we have a look at the epidemiology and causes of nephrotic syndrome in kids, we see that the incidence really peaks in early childhood with a median age of presentation of about four years old. Minimal change disease, which is the most common cause of nephrotic syndrome, has a median age of presentation of two and a half years. 90% of nephrotic syndrome cases in children are idiopathic, or in other words, we don't really know why they occur, and minimal change disease seems to be the most common cause. The good news is that over 80-90% to 90% are steroid sensitive. However, it's important to note and also tell families that of the children that are steroid sensitive, about 80% will go on to have one or more relapses. So what causes nephrotic syndrome? Well, minimal change disease, or MCD, is the biggest culprit. It composes of about 70% of all nephrotic syndrome cases in children. Next, we have focal segmental glomerular sclerosis, or FSGS, and that contributes between 7 to 15% of cases. Next, we have membranoproliferative glomerulonephritis, or MPGN, and that contributes about 8% of cases. Next, we have membranous glomerulonephropathy, and that constitutes about 2% of cases. Other causes that are uncommon include proliferative glomerulonephritis and mesangial proliferation. Nephrotic syndrome can be secondary to other conditions such as diabetic nephropathy, lupus nephritis, and medications. However, those causes are less common in children comparatively to adults. Specific to pediatrics is congenital nephrotic syndrome, which is a heterogeneous group of disorders that present in utero or within the first three months of life with marked edema and massive proteinuria. In most of these cases, the congenital nephrotic syndrome is a primarily glomerular disorder due to genetic defects. 
Originally, this disorder was referred to as the Finnish type nephrotic syndrome due to its high incidence in Finland. There's two genes that are implicated in congenital nephrotic syndrome, and those are NPHS1 and NPHS2, and they encode nephrin and pedocin, respectively. There are other syndromic causes of nephrotic syndrome as well that may be linked to genes such as WT1 and LAMB2, but they are uncommon. That all sounds like a lot. But what you need to remember in terms of clinical examinations as well as just clinical practice is that minimal change disease is by far the most common cause and the next culprit is FSGS. Nephrotic syndrome is one of those conditions where the pathophysiology really underpins the clinical picture and manifestations. So let's check them out. Let's start with the proteinuria first. Proteinuria means that you're losing proteins in your urine, and in minimal change disease, this is selectively albumin. So loss of protein in your urine causes proteinuria, and loss of albumin in your urine causes less albumin in your blood, hence hypoalbuminemia. Now albumin, as we all know, is super important to maintain the oncotic pressure within your blood and vasculature. So less albumin means there's less oncotic pull of fluid into your vascular spaces. And if you have less pull, it means this fluid goes out into the interstitium and that leads to edema. That edema can be manifested as pitting edema in the feet, puffiness of the eyes, pulmonary edema, significant ascites, scrotal edema, sacral edema, you get the picture. Significant loss of intravascular fluid or concomitant reasons to be dehydrated such as vomiting or diarrhea can mean that patients with nephrotic syndrome may look edematous but be intravascularly dry and actually quite dehydrated. Another manifestation is frothy urine and that is due to lipids that are lost in the urine and this is usually seen in the morning samples. This is due to hyaline from dead cells containing flat globules that causes the urine to be frothy. And while we're on the topic of lipids, those with nephrotic syndrome actually have hyperlipidemia, and that's another classic feature. And this is related to the hypoproteinemia and low serum oncotic pressure that is seen in nephrotic syndrome because we're losing it all into the urine. This then leads to reactive hepatic protein synthesis, including lipoproteins, and that's why you have high lipids. Another issue that you may see in some parts of nephrotic syndrome is an increased risk of infection or specifically encapsulated bacteria, and that being pneumococcal. And this is due to immunoglobin loss as well through the kidneys. Finally, another really important factor that may be seen in nephrotic syndrome is a hypercoagulable state. And the reason that this hypercoagulable state occurs is because there's a loss of antithrombin 3 in the urine. And antithrombin 3 is a really important physiological means to limit coagulation and thrombosis. So there you have it. The typical presentation of nephrotic syndrome is a kid that is between the ages of around 1 to 12 years old that has proteinuria, hypoalbuminemia, and edema. 
Things that may make you think of an atypical presentation or suspect an alternative diagnosis include an age that is less than a year old or older than 12 years old. People with nephrotic syndrome also shouldn't have systemic features such as fevers, rashes and joint pain. If they're present, you should be thinking of things like SLE or Henoch-Schonlein purpura. If there's any features of nephritic syndrome, such as macroscopic hematuria, hypertension, acute kidney injury, or red cell casts, this all suggests that you should be thinking nephritic. Another thing that is not a key feature of nephrotic syndrome is persistent hypertension. So what should you do in the assessment of someone that you suspect may have nephrotic syndrome? In terms of history, you want to get an idea of the onset of the edema, if there's any family history of renal troubles or nephrotic syndrome itself, and if the child has any other symptoms or systemic symptoms such as rashes or joint pain that may steer you into differentials of SLE or HSP, for example. In the examination, you want to assess the degree of edema Children who have discomfort or gross scrotal or vulval edema are considered as having significant edema. They may also have really significant limb swelling with potential skin breakdown if it's particularly bad. Some children may have increased work of breathing from pleural effusions and pulmonary edema and others may have significant abdominal distension from ascites. You also want to assess for signs of intravascular volume depletion. This may manifest as dizziness, a postural blood pressure drop. They may have peripheral hypoperfusion in the form of cold hands and feet or a prolonged caprifal time. Fluid balance may show a reduced urine output and the vital signs may show a tachycardia. Hypotension or a low blood pressure is a pretty late sign. Complications to look out for include cellulitis in the areas of swelling, such as the pedal edema. Children can also get peritonitis due to the ascites, as well as the loss of antibodies in the urine. So if you're suspecting this, it's really important to get the surgeons involved to help with the paracentesis and cover the child with antibiotics. You also should think about thromboses such as DVTs, PEs or renal vein thromboses and these are particularly increased risk in relapses, especially if they're hypovolemic. So what investigations do we order when we think a child mm, could have nephrotic syndrome? Well, the first thing that is often done is a urine dipstick and this shows 3 plus protein. A urine PCR or protein creatinine ratio can also be done and this it shows more than 200 milligrams of protein per millimole of creatinine. A urine microscopy may show waxy casts or fat droplets. It may show some microhematuria and in fact about 20% of cases of nephrotic syndrome do have microscopic hematuria. However, muddy casts or macroscopic hematuria do not fit with nephrotic syndrome. Bloods should also be done, including a full blood count, urea and electrolytes, as well as liver function tests. Most pertinently, the albumin will be low, less than 25 grams per litre. The full blood count 
may show a raised hematocrit due to intravascular volume contraction. In terms of renal function, the creatinine should be normal. However, if there is significant or severe intravascular volume contraction, they may have an AKI. But for basic purposes, the creatinine or the renal function should be normal in nephrotic syndrome. So now we know what nephrotic syndrome is, how it presents, and what the initial workup of a case where we think could be nephrotic syndrome. Now we're going to check out what the management of nephrotic syndrome is and what is the prognosis of a child that is diagnosed with nephrotic syndrome. All children with a first episode of nephrotic syndrome should be admitted. You treat as sepsis if you're concerned about significant intravascular volume depletion or there's other signs and symptoms of sepsis. The symptomatic management of nephrotic syndrome includes a no-salt added diet. Normal protein is okay. Routine fluid restriction is usually not needed. However, if there is significant volume losses or fluid shifts, this may be considered. A child with nephrotic syndrome also needs to have daily weights, daily urine dipstick, and a strict fluid balance because we really need to know where all this fluid is going. If a child has significant hypovolemia or significant edema, albumin is given. And usually it's 20% albumin at one gram per kilo over four hours with one milligram per kilogram of frisamide given halfway and also at the end. The point of this is that the albumin that is given pulls fluid from the extravascular space into the intravascular space. And that helps the intravascular hypovolemia and reduces the edema. The point of the frisamide is to get rid of that fluid once it's in the intravascular space, especially if there's significant edema. In terms of routine penicillin prophylaxis, current guidelines don't recommend routinely given penicillins. They say it's not indicated unless there is a risk of pneumococcal infection in the way of really significant symptomatic edema or the child is unimmunized. But the big ticket item and the star of the show when you treat nephrotic syndrome is steroids. So first line is oral prednisolone at 60 milligrams per meter squared for four weeks. You then wean this dose over the subsequent eight weeks. 90% of children should respond to this treatment and the proteinuria should abate. If there is no response to steroids after six weeks of steroid therapy, then you should really be calling the nephrology team because this is atypical and things like kidney biopsies and genomic testing may be considered. Once a child is treated for nephrotic syndrome and the proteinuria ceases, you need to monitor that urine daily for the next one to two years. That means every morning dipping that urine, educating families about how to do that, how 
to do the ongoing follow-up and when to call the team in times of suspicion for relapse. And relapse itself is defined as 3 plus protein on a urine dipstick for 3 consecutive days. So what do you do if someone is not quite fitting that typical trajectory? Well, you discuss it with a nephrology team and reasons to discuss with them include features suggesting a diagnosis that is not minimal change disease. And this may include macroscopic hematuria, hypertension or macroscopic hematuria in combination, persistently impaired renal function, or significant increase in creatinine despite a correction of any hypovolemia. Another reason is if the edema is particularly severe and difficult control, or if the child is not in remission after four to six weeks of steroid therapy. Children who are frequently relapsing, or in other words, having more than two relapses in six months or more than four in 12 months, should also be talked about to the nephrologist. And finally, if a child is experiencing stereotoxicity, you should also talk to the nephrologist because this may prompt consideration of an alternative non-steroid agent. An initial relapse is managed with a reintroduction of a full prednisolone dose and then a subsequent wean. The total time of weaning may be shortened if a child relapses quite infrequently. However, if a child is steroid resistant or they're having a large number of relapses, there may be a need for a steroid sparing agent. And in terms of nephrotic syndrome, the current first line agents are calcineurin inhibitors, specifically cyclosporin or tacrolimus. Second line agents include rituximab. Finally, What's the outlook for a child that has nephrotic syndrome? Well, 90% of children with nephrotic syndrome will respond to steroids. 75% of children that do respond to steroids will have a relapse in their nephrotic syndrome and 50% of them will be multiple relapses. Ultimately, most children will grow out of their nephrotic syndrome with no significant long-term consequence. However, if you have a child that is frequently relapsing, becoming increasingly steroid dependent or steroid resistant, it is really important to talk to the nephrology team because at this time, you need to consider other differentials such as FSGS. And that's been this week's episode of A Spoonful of Medicine. Thank you so much for joining us. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and tell a friend. For the visual learners of us out there, head over to our Instagram page at spoonful.of.medicine for a quick summary of today's episode, along with some other great educational content. If you'd like to get in touch, have a suggestion for a future episode, or have heard something that you think needs a correction, please email us on spoonfulofmedicinepodcast at gmail.com. It's been a pleasure topping up your paediatric knowledge one spoonful at a time. I can't wait for you to join us on our next episode. But until then, bye.